So many of you know, for the last couple months, we have been taking in words of power from our King of Kings at his Sermon on the Mount. Today, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew makes a shift from his words of power to his works of power, his miracles. And miracles always create an interesting conversation. Some have attempted to separate the teaching of Christ from his miracles, one, one being Thomas Jefferson. Were you aware of that? He took a razor to his Bible and cut out the supernatural elements, the miracles, and, and kept the teachings in the rest of the life of, of Jesus. It was called the, the life and teachings or life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Let me ask you a question. If you know your Bible, did Jesus ever intend from his words to be separated from his works? Absolutely not. They all point back to who he is. When you think about miracles, some have tried to count them as they go through the four Gospels. How many miracles are recorded there? And the number varies. Usually it's around 35 to 40, uh, depending on who you're reading. But we know something. We know the Gospels do not contain them all. Remember what John said at the end of his Gospel, John 21, 25? He said, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. <laughs> Maybe that's one reason it's a good thing we have eternity in heaven. Maybe we sit down with him and say, hey, what else happened while you were here? I, I want to know. It's always an interesting conversation with those who are skeptical about miracles, too. And maybe you're one of those today. You say, hey, science cannot prove miracles, so I struggle to believe in them. But I want to say something to you this morning. That science is a useful tool when it's used properly and truthfully. True science points us to the truth of God in this world, but science only goes so far. It's not useful for everything. Let me give you a couple examples. Could science prove the feelings of love that I have for Carolyn and my boys? No. Does that mean I don't have those feelings? Absolutely not. And, and science, understood properly, cannot even prove that George Washington lived on this planet. It requires a different tool, a, a historical manuscript type of, of research, right? Trying to use science for everything is almost like, hey, I hear there's a weather system coming in tomorrow, so I'm going to pull out my thermometer and watch the air pressure to see if it's getting close. Wrong tool, right? You, you would need a different tool. You would need a barometer uh, to figure that out. And when it comes to ultimate matters of life and meaning and purpose, while, while true science points us to the fact that it's reasonable to believe in a God, we need something that goes further. You know what that something is? Faith. Faith. You, you know what Hebrews 11.1 1 describes faith as? It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In verse 6, he gets right to it. He says, without faith, it's impossible 
to please him. Now, does faith contradict true science? True science? No, it doesn't, but it goes beyond science. Okay, now I think about that, and I, I think about the story. Maybe you've heard it. There's a guy out fishing, and the people watching him were, were stupefied because he would catch these big fish. Big fish. He'd reel them in, and when he caught a big one, he would throw it back in the water. He'd keep fishing. He'd catch a little one, and he'd throw it in his, his bucket. And after people watched him for an hour, like, what are you doing, dude? You're you catching the big ones and throwing them back and keeping the little ones. And, and he says, well, my frying pan's only eight inches. <laughs> Why do I share that? I share that because if science is the only lens through which you're trying to view the world, you need a larger frying pan. You're missing uh, some of the bigger fish. I think about miracles. I think of a man named Herbert Lockyer. I'm so serious. He wrote in all the series about the Bible, all the kings and queens of the Bible. That's one book, all the prophecies of the Bible. He wrote one in that series called All the Miracles of the Bible from beginning to end. He, he tried to summarize them all. And I just want to share a couple of things he wrote in there. One thing he said is that the laws of nature are no straitjacket to the God who created them. I like that. He, he also said this. He said, because of all God is in himself and all he possesses, he has unlimited freedom to accomplish what he deems best. He would not be the Lord God Almighty if he could not perform supernatural acts consistent with his own being and character. Amen? Amen. So you think about the purposes of miracle, what do they point to? And I want to say they point backwards and forward when we look at our Bible and history. First, they point backward to prophecy. They, they prove to those who saw them and were willing to, to, to admit, and those of us today who read of them, that he fulfilled prophecies about the Messiah written centuries before. For example, Isaiah 35 Verse 5, it talks about the coming day of salvation. And you know what he wrote? He said, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. See how they pointed to Jesus, the Messiah, when you think of his ministry. They point backwards, but they also point to a future. Those miracles of healing and power point to a future for those who believe where all sin and suffering will be a thing of the past because of his power. Think of Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. There are three Words or phrases used commonly in the Bible to describe miracles. And each one brings out a different facet, like, like different facets of a diamond when we look at miracles. One of those was wonders. They're called wonders. You know what that emphasizes? The reaction of the people that, that were there and, and saw it. Whoa! Whoa! There's also works of power. 
which obviously, straight to the point, emphasizes the power, the dunamis of God at work in that moment. But the last one is my favorite. It's one John used a lot. You know what it was? Signs. Signs. Why did he use that word so often? Because miracles were signs that that point us to who Jesus is and because he came to reveal the Father, who, who the Father is. And I think about that, and maybe you've heard this before, but let's say this summer your family's going to, to Yellowstone. And you're driving down the highway, and you get close, and you see a sign that says Yellowstone, 100 miles. How many of your families get out at that road sign, unload all your stuff, and say, yeah, we're here? <laughs> people driving by me like, what's wrong with those people? It, it, they're missing something because the sign is meant to point you all the way to the destination, right? Same thing with miracles. It's, it's appropriate to be in awe and wonder at the miracle itself, but do not stop there. Follow the sign to who it's pointing to. Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus said this himself. John 5, 36, the, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. However, caution here, the, the miracles, even when people lived at the same time, were of no value to those who were not willing to see the truth who were not willing to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Think of the, the raising of Lazarus, which could not be denied. John 11, he, he's there, he's eating, he was dead. But did that lead to faith in many of the leaders of Israel at the time? No, what did it do? It solidified their efforts to kill him, right? And I think about that, I, I can't help but think about the magician's nephew again. Chronicles of Narnia, before Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. There was a, a boy named Diggory and a girl named Polly who went to Narnia before anything was created there. It was all darkness. And Aslan, the lion who represents Jesus, of course, was there. And they watch as Aslan begins to sing this beautiful song. And as he sings, the stars come out. And the mountains arise and the rivers begin to flow and the kids are just in awe. Wow, he's singing and this world is coming into being. It was right before their eyes. But, but the boy had an uncle who was wicked, was afraid of the lion and nothing more. And he said, that lion's not singing. He's, he's only roaring, denying what's right before his eyes. And C.S. Lewis had this powerful but haunting line. He said, the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. Think about how important it is to have a willing heart to receive the truth about God. I, I think about Romans 1. What does Paul tell us? There are those who look at the obvious truth of, of the design and intricacy of creation and suppress that truth. Rather than worshiping that God, they make idols. And as the chapter goes on, for those who continue to insist on suppressing the truth, what does it say? 
that God gave them over to a delusion. At some point, he says, you want to suppress the truth? Have it your way. Have it your way. No value for those who are unwilling to see the truth, but for those willing. It's much like what he said about his teaching in John 17, 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Are Are you willing this morning? to follow the truth to whom it leads. Finally, I agree with those who say miracles are parables in action. They they really happen. But what we see Jesus do in the physical realm is also a parable that points to his power to save us spiritually. So with that in mind, I want to jump in to Matthew chapter 8. And we're going to look at some of these miraculous encounters. And I want to share that I see three things about our Savior in these encounters. The first one is that He is a willing Savior. He's a willing Savior. Matthew 8, verse 1. When He came down from the mountain, great crowds followed Him. He had finished that Sermon on the Mount, and they were in awe at His authority as He taught. And many of them were following Him at this point. In verse 2, behold... A leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Did he have a question about whether Jesus could do it? No. He said, if you will, you can make me clean. What's his question? If Jesus would. He said, if you will. And you say, why would, he, why would he wonder that? Well, to get into his heart, you have to understand the condition of a leper. Leprosy covered many skin diseases. You can study the physical aspect, but what I want to focus on are the social implications. What was this man's life like? Leviticus 13.45 tells us, Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, Cover the lower part of their face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. Can you imagine the loneliness of living in that condition? Isolated from family and friends away from society. Maybe you know what it is to be lonely for for other reasons. Can you imagine the faith it took this man, with that being the rule, to, to not only come into this crowd of people, probably people backing up like this to stay away, but to come right to the center of the crowd, the, the one who had been teaching. And I understand, if you will, because anyone who touched such a man, according to the Old Testament law, would become unclean, if you will. Verse 3, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. Now, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus have to touch the man to heal him? (laughs) No, in fact, we're about to see another miracle where he did it from a distance, miles away. 
That tells us something about the heart of the Savior. This, this man had not been touched in who knows how long. And you think about how much that touch meant. What was the result? Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Verse 4, Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone except for this, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. That was the Old Testament law. You go to the priest and you're declared clean. This should have also been a perk to the priest's ears that, hey, something's going on here that we ought to look further into. Last time we heard of this was old Naaman the Syrian getting dipped in the Jordan River and, and God hearing, uh, healing Miriam from leprosy when Moses prayed. There is something going on here. And I think about that and I think of the willingness of Jesus to not only say the word but to touch this man and heal him physically. And we've got to understand that leprosy throughout the Bible, because of its defilement and its ability to separate us, is an apt picture of sin. So when I talk about miracles being parables in action, I believe this also points to the fact that many of us are wondering, hey, I look at my life, I look at the sins I've committed, maybe the sins I'm part of right now, and I feel untouchable. Like if people really knew where I've been and, and what I've been a part of, they wouldn't want to be anywhere near me. And there may be someone in here this morning feeling like that and asking the question, is, is there someone willing to save me from this sin? And the answer is absolutely there is. Think of what this same Savior said in Luke 15, 1. He said, what man of you having a hundred sheep if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. You see that? He's not only willing to, to come after you, sinner. He's pursuing you. He's pursuing you. I think about this, and, and I go again to the Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian. Prince Caspian finds out from Aslan that he's actually a descendant of Adam and Eve. And he was pretty discouraged by that. He said, I was wishing I came of a more honorable lineage. Listen to Aslan's response. He said, you come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve. And that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Be content. We get the shame, right, because of our sin. Where's the honor come from? Did we earn it? No, but when he created Adam and Eve, whose image were they created in? Whose image are you created in? The image of God. And I think about all this, and you have to go with me for a second. I think about a humbling morning I had at, at Fry's this week. It all started, I was just going in to get two cucumbers. That's how it all began. And I went in, checked out, got the two cucumbers, went to get back in the van. I'm like, where's my phone? Oh, where's my phone? Some of you have been there. You feel awful. Where's my phone? Then I realized on the way in, I had thrown some Taco Bell trash into the garbage can. I'm like, was my, was my phone 
with that. So out in front of Fry's, I open up the garbage can and I'm, I'm digging in the garbage, kind of looking around to see if any of you all were there. <laughs> Wasn't in there. Finally had the, the idea that, hey, Jeremiah, my friend, works here. I can ask him to call Carolyn, ask her to pull up her finder and make my phone make the ding noise. So I, and she said, it looks like it's in the parking lot. I go out to the parking lot, and I hear the dinging by my van. I'm looking inside, and then I realized what I had done. I had set it on top of my van. So don't ever do that. What if I had driven off? right? But I think about what in the world would possess someone to dig through other people's filth in a garbage can? Like I saw Kleenex in there. I touched Kleenex. I can't tell you how many times I washed my hands. What in the world would cause somebody to dig through other people's filth? Because they are pursuing something valuable to them. Now think about that. We have a Savior who stepped down into the sin and filth of this world while not himself being a part of it, but he came down here to pursue you and to pursue me. I just want to say you may feel untouchable today. Like, like nobody wants, would want to be around you if they really knew who you are, either physically or spiritually. And you feel like no one is willing to pursue me in that kind of need. I pray you now know there is a Savior who's more than willing. He is pursuing you. He's willing. Next one we're going to see he is able He's able. Verse 5, when he had entered Capernaum, and we learn from the Gospels, this kind of became Jesus' hometown. We'll see that Peter lived there too, his, his home base at least. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Now you all know what a centurion was. He, he ruled over 100 soldiers in the Roman army. He's a Gentile, right? And we learn from Luke about this same centurion that he loved the Jews. He was likely a God-fearer, had some respect for the God of the Jews because Luke tells us he actually helped them build a synagogue where they, where they could worship. And this man who has great authority to command 100 soldiers must have realized that, that this problem in his life that he came to was outside of his authority. He was going to have to appeal to a higher authority. So verse 6, you see him say, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. You see something else about this man's character here. Did it say his son or his wife? No, this is his servant. How easy would it be for someone who oversees a hundred soldiers to, to overlook this? It's one servant. But he cares for this servant enough to, to track down the, the Savior. And Jesus said to him, verse 7, I will come and heal him. We're going to learn something else about this man of authority, this centurion. He was humble. He says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. Now, this humility is even more striking when you read the Gospel of Luke because the Jews there tell Jesus, This is a good man. He helped us build our synagogue. 
But this man knew his own soul, and he, he had some sense of who he was talking to in Jesus and that he was not worthy. What was his reasoning? He, he said, say the word and my servant will be healed. Here's his reasoning. He says, I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I, I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. It's simple logic. He's saying, I got people I command around, and I know something of your power and authority enough to know that you can command diseases to go just like I command my men. I believe that. Even if you're not there. What was Jesus' reaction to this? Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. He's like, wow. <laughs> he's fully God, but he's fully man too. He, he can marvel. Why? He said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. There's this Gentile soldier. And he's marveling at his faith. The other time it says Jesus marveled at something. You know where it was? In Mark chapter 6. It was in his hometown of Nazareth among Jewish people. There he marveled at their unbelief. And here he's marveling at the belief of a, a Gentile. And Jesus would go on to use this example of the faith of a Gentile to say many more Gentiles will believe as well. Listen to what he says in verse 11. I tell you, many will come from east and west. That would include you if you're a believer. They'll come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom, who's he talking about there? He's talking about those Jewish people he's working among will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Is that all the Jews? No. Matthew is a Jew writing here. Peter, Paul, you go on and on. And there's even a remnant today. But by and large, what's it say? He came to those who were his own, and his own did not receive him. And I think about this, and I, I just come to this conclusion here, that ancestry or authority will not get you into the kingdom of heaven. That's what was going on with some of the Jewish folks in his day. We're descendants of Abraham. We're good, but they were rejecting the Messiah that came from Abraham. That's the bad news. No ancestry or authority is going to get you into the kingdom of heaven. You've heard it said God does not have grandkids. Growing up in a Christian home is a wonderful blessing. That does not make you a Christian. Now what's the, the good news side of this? No, no one's lack of ancestry or authority is great enough to prevent his entry into the kingdom of heaven if he has faith in Jesus Christ. You may be here saying, who am I to enter the kingdom of heaven? The question is not who are you, it's who is Jesus? Even Billy Graham, I was listening to a Fernando Ortega version of Just As I Am this morning. A song Billy Graham used a lot at his crusades, right? And they put Billy Graham's voice in with the music at one part and Billy Graham was talking about a time he was in the hospital afraid he was going to die 
And he said, when I was in that moment in the hospital, he said, I did not say to God, I'm a preacher. He said, I said to God, I'm a sinner. I need your cross. I need your cross. Faith in Jesus. Verse 13, and to the centurion said, Jesus said, go. Let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus was miles away, but he is the Lord of time and space. He spoke a word, and that very moment, the servant was healed. And what I want to tell us this morning, he's not only able to do that physically, he's able to do that spiritually as well. He says, is God able to save me? Listen to what Hebrews 7 says. Verse 24, the Savior who took our sin to the cross and rose again is now next to the Father. And it says, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. He is able, sinner. Now, you may be like this centurion. You're just realizing now that you've come to a situation in your life where you thought you had it under control, but you're realizing the more you look at it, this is bigger than me. This is outside of my jurisdiction. It's outside of my power. It's outside of my authority. There's a Savior who is able. Will you come to him like the centurion did? And I think about those moments I can't help but think back to an old third day song. I know Mac Powell's off doing his own stuff now and it's pretty good. But we'll never forget these third day lyrics. Just just take these in for a moment. To everyone who's lost someone they love long before it was their time. You feel like the days you had were not enough when he said goodbye. For the marriage that's struggling just to hang on. They've lost all their faith in love. And they've done all they can to make it right again. Still, it's not enough. For the ones who cannot break the addictions and chains, you try to give up, but you come back again. Just remember that you're not alone in your shame and your suffering. There's hope for the helpless, rest for the weary, and love for the broken heart. And there's grace and forgiveness, mercy and healing, He'll meet you wherever you are. Cry out to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus. He's willing. He's able. And finally, he sees. He sees what you're going through. He knows what you're going through. Verse 14 says, When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. That's one little word. He saw her. But I love it because Jesus was a man with much weight on his shoulders. He he had just preached to the masses, right? And he knows he's on the way to the cross. If anyone could say, hey, I'm a little busy here. I'm just going to rest for a while. He comes into Peter's house and it says he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Dr. Luke in his gospel, because he's a doctor, he says it's a great fever. He's a doctor. He knew the difference between a great fever and a small fever. This was a great fever. Verse 15 says, He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. 
The miracle is multifaceted here. Not only did the fever go away, but you and I, after fighting a fever for some time, we're wiped out, right? It takes, takes a while to come back to full strength. Not her. She's up and at him. <laughs> she rose and began to serve him. She was completely healed, completely recovered in an instant. And she began to serve him, which many have pointed out. That's a right and fitting response when we are thankful for what Christ has done in our own lives. Lord, thank you. Now, how can I serve you? How can I live my life to, to glorify you? And I think about this Savior who sees. I think about the Father who he reveals. I, I think back again to Hagar. You remember poor Hagar in the Old Testament? Abraham and Sarah had been told they were going to have a child in their old age and and they cook up their own way to have it done. They say, hey, you, you sleep with the maidservant Hagar. And, and Hagar gets pregnant. And then Sarah gets jealous. And it says Sarah mistreated Hagar. She, she's caught up in, in their fleshly scheme. She's pregnant. Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Listen to this. Genesis 16, 7 says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. And then he tells her, we, I've got a plan for you. Verse 10, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Down to verse 13, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Hard to overstate how alone she must have felt out in that desert and how much it meant when God showed up. At the end of the first service, I talked with someone who, who 30 years ago said they were at a point so desperate that they were ready to, to take their own life. And her friend said, cry out to Jesus. And she cried out to Jesus and she said, I could feel the darkness lift. You may think no one sees, but he sees. There's a Savior who sees. He's, he's willing, he's able, and he sees. And it wasn't just Peter's mother-in-law that night either. Listen to verse 16. It says, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. You notice it says that evening. We, we learned from the Gospels together that the Sabbath just came to an end at that evening time. They, they were afraid. They knew their leaders. You walk a certain distance on the Sabbath and, and you're going to get written up. They didn't know yet Jesus' heart. He, he healed repeatedly on the Sabbath, but they waited and you think about those who came. Think about their trip there. I, I think about the demon possessed. I mean, how miserable and tormented and helpless they must have felt. Now think about their trip back home. Suddenly set free. Full of joy and wonder again. Maybe the, the light, that sparkle back in their eyes that they hadn't had for a long time. Maybe they were lame there. You think about them. Maybe their family carried them miles and miles 
on the trip there. Can you imagine their, their trip home running, jumping? Thank you, Lord. Can you imagine those who came deaf, un, unable to hear? And the trip back, their ears opened and, and hearing for the first time, maybe a bird chirp or their loved ones speak to them. What about those blind? Unable to see on the way home. First, when it happened, of course, they look into the face of the Savior. And then to see their, their mother, their father, their, their children, their friends. And in all of this, Matthew's careful to tell us in our last verse that Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. Verse 17 says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now you may be saying, where was that in Isaiah? Where are they taking that from the prophet Isaiah? Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Now those of you who know your Bibles may be saying, wait a second, when Peter talked about that in 1 Peter, he, he used it to refer to our sin. Right? 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and, and live for righteousness. By his wounds... You have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So you may be saying, which is it? Our sin or sickness and suffering? You know what the answer is? Yes. Yes, sin is the root of all suffering and sickness in the world. The sickness and suffering are the fruit. But that leads us to a question that Christians have wrestled with for, for centuries. The, the question, is that always in this life? Does, does the healing always come this side of eternity? It can. It can. I've seen it. I've seen prayers for, for an elder, elderly woman who needed heart surgery for a blockage, bring her to a point where the, the next scan showed she had the heart of an 18-year-old and surgery was canceled. I've seen that. But I've also been in hospital rooms with people who love Jesus every bit as much as that woman. And as far as I could tell from the outside, trusted him every bit as much as that woman and died from brain cancer, entered eternity with her Lord. Those are experiences, scriptures more foundational on this. Think of Paul. Does God always take suffering away from his saints when he asks them to? Not even the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, we got to confess, we don't know what this thorn in the flesh was. There are ideas about it. But what was Paul's response? Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, if you sh that it should leave me. And maybe you've been there pleading time and time again, Lord, please take this away. Verse 9, but he said to me, 
My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. A shorter verse, but interesting on this front too. 2 Timothy 4.19, the Apostle Paul, who had done many healings, right? Powerful healings in the name of Jesus. You know what he writes in 2 Timothy 4.19? He's talking about his friends, and one of them's named Trophimus. He says, I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Now, isn't that a weird thing for an apostle who did many healings to do? If it's always God's will to heal someone, he can do it in this life. He certainly will in eternity. Listen to what the St. Paul writes, Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. And I think about that sometimes here, sometimes then. I think about an old Christian artist named Scott Cripain that Carolyn and I used to listen to when we were dating. Anybody even ever heard of him? A couple. The lyrics in one of his songs, and they, they've stuck with me all these years. He said, sometimes he calms the storm, and other times he calms his child. If you're like me, you've been on both sides of that equation throughout your life. We have a Savior who is willing, he's able, and he sees. And I believe all of this would give us hope if we'd receive it by faith, whatever you're facing today. We all need hope, do we not? You remember what Hal Lindsey wrote back in the day? He said, man can live about 40 days without food, about three days without water, about eight minutes without air but only for one second without hope. And I think about how these miracles open our eyes to the power of our almighty God. I got to close with one more excerpt from the Chronicles of Narnia. Lucy and her three brothers had been away from their first trip to Narnia for about a year in earth time, which was many years in Narnia. They come back and Lucy sees Aslan again, who, of course, represents Jesus. Listen to this. Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger. He said, that is because you are older, little one. She said, not because you are. I am not, he said. But he went on, every year you grow, you will find me bigger. What is he getting at there? Does, does Jesus change? No, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But the longer we walk with him in his word and prayer, the, the more experiences we have under our belt with him, our understanding of his might and power and love and the might, power, and love of his Father who, who he came to reveal grows. Lord, I thank you for this passage. And I thank you that, that we see the, the unhindered power of God at work on these pages. It does give us hope. And, and it gives us hope physically. But even more importantly, it gives us hope spiritually. And I pray that anyone who needs to receive that truth about who you are today would just take it in. We have a God who's willing 
God who's able and a God who sees. Meet them at their point of need. Maybe they've been crying out to you even this morning. Thank you that you not only speak powerfully, Jesus, but you work powerfully. And I pray this morning as we take our offering, it would be from great gratitude for our almighty King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.